of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at Oro Recovery. Are you looking for a place to get well? Are you willing to go to sunny Southern California? Do you want to be treated with compassion and connection rather than control? Well, then look no further than Oro Recovery, founded by the great Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob, with a staff with decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders. They make sure that if you're nuts or if you're not nuts, you're well cared for. They also make sure your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is very important no matter what you're kicking. We all know a comfortable detox. I mean, some people might say you need to learn from a rough detox. I say make the detox as comfortable as possible. Avoid the torture. Everyone that I know that has been to Oro has only said amazing things. And that's uh, the most important point of this advertisement. Not to mention they have amenities you wouldn't believe. Equine therapy, sound bath meditation, surfing, the fucking potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. If I was relapsing, there would be nowhere I would want to go more than Oro Recovery. So if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, check out ororecovery.com and call them up Oro Recovery. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by my very good friends at Sober Buddy. What is Sober Buddy? Well, what isn't Sober Buddy? Sober Buddy isn't a rehab. It is an app you keep in your pocket. It is a community of addicts and alcoholics either sober curious with long-term recovery or newly sober, helping each other to maintain recovery, to find sobriety and to maintain it. They do 11 Zooms a week. 
I host the Wednesday Zoom. They have a free trial. If you're dying to check out my Zoom, join the free trial. Come to the Wednesday Zoom. There's 10 other Zooms a week. There is an app with a feed of addicts and alcoholics supporting each other. They have challenges to help you maintain a mindset of recovery. Go to YourSoberBuddy.com. Go to the App Store or the Google Play Store and check out Sober Buddy. I know tons of people who are using it and can't say enough great things about it, so go check it out. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Soberlink. We need to talk about alcohol recovery in the workplace. Talking about sobriety and proving it to your employer can be so difficult, and our friends at Soberlink want to help. If you need a reliable way to present documented proof of sobriety to a boss or a loved one, use Soberlink. What is Soberlink? It is a high-tech, portable breathalyzer system that uses facial recognition technology to verify identity. It has unique sensors to ensure that no other air sources are being used, and it sends results directly to your specified contacts. So there's no questioning whether or not you took the test or whether or not you are altering the reporting. This is why Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system is considered the gold standard. Chris used it every day. Being in recovery from alcohol does not define the future of your career. Let Soberlink help. Learn more about Soberlink and request an exclusive $50 off promo code by visiting www.soberlink.com dopey. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. I'm in the Dopey studio starting the show, and I'm very, very pleased. It's been a very, very, I don't know, it's, it's an important week in my life. My older daughter turned 13 this week, so she is now a teenager, which is a lot like being a 12-year-old, but it was, a, it was a, an important uh, moment. It's a mark. A mark in a life, becoming a 13-year-old. We had like 10 13-year-old girls here sleeping over. I made a lasagna. My lasagna is really, really good, by the way. If anyone is curious about the lasagna recipe, I'm happy to share it. I'm going to share it on Patreon. Look for an amazing lasagna recipe on Patreon and maybe a cooking segment to follow where I cook up some lasagna. There's some good shit on Patreon if you're a crazy dopey fan or if you're just a dopey lover who feels guilty about getting so many hours of free content, then uh, kick down to Patreon. It's www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast and join Patreon. Uh, any, any amount of money will do. Five bucks gets you into our monthly Patreon Zoom. Ten bucks gets you the incredible dopey sticker collection. And 15 gets you socks the sticker collection, and the Dopey Zoom. Uh, we did a crazy piece last week with Aaron Carr. I got an email from a woman who claims, a different woman who claims she was visited by Chris's ghost and had a romance with him, the ghost, and now they are married. So if you want to hear about that, go to Patreon. It's pretty wild. I'm very curious to see your opinions about that. 
Also, last week we broke the 9 million download mark, crushing my father's prediction. Hopefully we're going to get my dad on the show again soon so that we can mock him for his horrible prediction. But congratulations to us. I'm very, very proud that we hit 9 million, and it's all because of you guys. But it's funny. It's all relative. I think Joe Rogan gets 12 million downloads a month or something. So, like, our 9 million is totally relative. I also want to congratulate Liz Ann. Liz Ann just celebrated nine years. And uh, I would like to celebrate more people in the Dopey Nation uh, for their clean time. I should be doing this more. Devin Bertrand just celebrated 18 months. So congratulations, Devin. Jamie Elohiji got four years. Fucking Leanne got a year. Leanne Dopey. Rachel Groom got a year. Look at all this celebration. Greg Kelly got nine years. Julie Peary got another four. Fucking Jamie S. What the fuck? So many celebrations. Jamie Estep got 11 years. I can't believe that. Vinny got five years. Skinny Vinny. And uh, Kay Olson got three years. And Brady Peck got four. All right. That's all the celebrating I'm going to do. And if you want us to celebrate your clean time, send in an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Obviously, send in a story. That's always great. If you're worried about my dad or wondering about him, he recently returned from Antarctica. He arrived back in Miami this week. So I think we will get him on the show, if not today, then next week. And I know you guys are dying to hear from my dad. But this week we have a, a killer show. We have a real UK episode. We have lows of brutal recovery from Scotland in London, and we have Johan Hari, renowned journalist, author of fucking uh, Chasing the Scream and Lost Connections, and his new book, which was recently the number one paperback, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention, How to Think Deeply Again, is uh, on the show. I love this book. If you're interested in your attention span and why you're always on the phone, you should check out Stolen Focus. It is an amazing book. And if you're looking to have some fun in your recovery, I have to suggest The Phoenix. The Phoenix is a free app and not-for-profit foundation designed for alcoholics and addicts to have fun in recovery. It is amazing. Whether you have a personal experience with addiction or you want to support a friend, everyone finds something at the Phoenix. It's fun activities, stuff that brings us all together to make positive connections and real friendships. I know it sounds too simple, but every day we see the power of community actually changing how our society looks at addiction and sobriety. And we want you to join us and be a part of our movement. So find out more about the Phoenix at thephoenix.org slash movement. Look for a Phoenix uh, Dopey Nation collaboration in Zoom soon. I'm also going to start going to the gym with Chris Spolina in Brooklyn, I think, to do CrossFit. So you'll, I'm going to go to some Phoenix events. You guys can go to Phoenix events too. You go to thephoenix.org slash find a class or go to thephoenix.org slash movement. Uh, there's so much stuff. It's all over the country. Check out the Phoenix. It is free. The only cost of attendance is 48 hours of sobriety. That's it. Check them out. All right. 
Here we go. Here's Lowe's, then Johan Hari. There's a voicemail. There's some emails. It is a classic show. Enjoy. Be in touch. Send in an email. Send in a voicemail. Join Patreon. Sign up for YouTube. There's new YouTube stuff coming out, too, but I don't want to talk about that too much. All right, here we go. So I'm here with my friend Lowe's from Instagram's Brutal Recovery. Does anyone call you Brutal Recovery? Yes. It's, it's having nobody like to like intimate friends will not call me Brutal Recovery. Uh, I've got one friend that calls me BR, uh, but that's also Baskin Robbins, right? Which I think is quite funny, but like a lot of people will, I've, I've had the moment once or twice where someone's been like, are you Brutal Recovery? Uh, and one of my friends calls me Brutes. She shortens it to Brutes, which I think is quite cute. Yeah, I like that. That's nice. Is there Baskin Robbins in the UK? Yes, there is. And it shocked me. It's in uh, it's in Edgware in London. So if anyone uh, in in England is looking for their Baskin Robbins fix, there's a Chipotle here as well now. Like, I think we've talked about this. I, I seem to bring this up in every podcast I'm in, but like the UK's got really bad Mexican food. Did we talk about this literally just last time? I feel I never stopped talking about this. It's like, it's just not right. The Chipotle here is like not the same, but it's like, it was just still quite comforting. And even like Chipotle is not like Mexican, Mexican food, but anyway. Uh, so you're I'm saying, you're, you're saying in, in the UK, the Chipotle is inferior to American Chipotle. It is. I'm sad to say, cause I was really excited about it. Like it was still good, but it was like really, it was really small. Like it was really, really, really small, and like uh, it, it just didn't have to say. It just didn't have to say. I mean, that was my hangover suit, like back in the madness. Like it was the biggest comfort for me. So, um, you know, I've got a lot of emotional baggage with Chipotle and Wendy's as well. The Wendy's here isn't the same either. I don't know how we got here. Baskin Robbins. That's how we got here. But yeah, it's not the same. What was your Wendy's go-to? My Wendy's go-to was the Baconator. And uh, vanilla frosty and uh, fries. The baconator. Mm-hmm. I like the way you say it. Can you say that again with with the Scottish? <laughs> baconator. The baconator. Yeah, it's good. Very good. That, that's like that's like something that I've deprived myself for life. The mm-hmm. the baconator is something. My my. I don't like going to Wendy's. Like I I I liked it. I remember when I was a kid. I feel like I was getting tutored in math. And there was a Wendy's nearby and my dad would take me to Wendy's. And I was always like, this is a pretty high quality fast food institution. And then <laughs> as an adult, I would go with my children and I would always want to get the Baconator, but I'd always deprive myself the Baconator. Wow. I think I got it once. It's heavy duty, right? It's fucking serious sandwich. I, I remember, I remember my first Baconator and I remember like, oh, I'm in trouble. It's like, I really remember feeling this like, oh boy, like this, something has started here. And like, I, I didn't eat fast food growing up. Like I, we, I was, I was, you know, real junkie. Like I lived in the, the countryside. We didn't have like McDonald's or Burger King. Like we only had that when we went to the city, which wasn't often. So like when I was, you know, an unregulated person, adult, one might call an unregulated person, an adult. Uh, and I could like, you know, spend money on the food that I wanted and like experiencing fast food in America. Like it was so much. Like it was just, I don't know. I, I did so many uh, different families of drugs before I did fast food. Like fast food like came later for me. It's like an addiction. 
It fit in, though, in your world of addiction. You knew when you had fast food for the first time that this was going to be another potential problem. And I lived next to a Wendy's. Like, in the wrong door, I lived next to a Wendy's. Where? This was in Indiana. I, when I, I was at Indiana University, I lived for anyone who's local. What was it? It's the College Mall. I lived on College Mall Road, and I lived next to the Wendy's there. And was it a thing? Was was a was Wendy's an often location destination for you in in a day? Yes, absolutely. Like I, I would like I structure my day around it. Like and I would lie about it as well. Like I'd tell people that I needed to go home to practice or study, but like I was literally just leaving because I needed to go to Wendy's. Like I needed it. Well, <laughs> and if you're not, if, if, I if the audience is not familiar with you, Lowe's runs an Instagram page called Brutal Recovery, and it delves into the world of recovery, addiction, alcoholism, and food is a big topic in the world of Brutal Recovery. Yes. It really, really, really is, because like, I think it's what's about this in my episode, that like when, uh, you know, one of, my, one of my first addictions was my eating disorder, right? Like it was controlling the world around me by controlling my body. And like when I grew up, I realized like, oh my God, I'm so scared of love. I'm so scared of being in love. But all I want is love. I can't get that. So I'm just going to eat. I'm just going to like make myself feel full. Like, and, and it would happen like after like hookups and stuff. So like I would just binge and binge and binge. Because I'd be like, I don't feel full. Like, it was like really like just this emotional need. Yeah, like I've been, I've been reassessing my boundaries with food recently because, like, I've been, you know, I've been kind of stressed. I've been moving, and like, you know, there's big shifts and changes happening in my life. And then it's like, you know, my my sex and love's like, it's in a good state right now. My money, like, not overspending. I'm not underspending. So it's like, ooh, where is it gonna go? It's gonna go into my food. So it's like, I had like a week there where I had to be like reminded to eat, reminded to eat. And then this week, I'm so snacky. Like, I keep, uh, we've got like a little chocolate shelf in the cupboards, and I keep having to replace the crunchies. And I just had to go up there and say to my boyfriend, like, I ate all the crunchies. Like, I'll go get some new ones because I keep eating. What kind of crunchies? Like the, the honeycomb, like little crunchy things. I'm thinking of 90 days without chocolate. I'm thinking about doing oh it. God. I'm like, I'm right there. Like, I'm feeling it. Like, I've yeah. been going hard. Yesterday was my daughter's 13th birthday. The day before was, <gasps> was fucking Valentine's Day. Like, I've, I've been going mm. hard. You know, like, and then two days before that, we had the other party for my daughter where we get the Carvel Fudgy the Whale cake, which Carvel is a famous American ice cream shop. And Fudgy the Whale is an adorable character made of fudge. And uh, we love him. And I wind up eating whatever's left over, like, night after night of ice cream cake binges. And I know that, like, my cholesterol's not good. My, I just need, I want to do 90 days. I'm ready. I want to do, I want to fucking do 90 days. Why 90 though? Like maybe 30. Is that not more like, wow. It's are, are you going to, we're no strangers to like a 90 but like, you know. That's <laughs> why. No, because I was talking to my sponsor and my sponsor is like a freak. He's kind of like a health freak. And he's like, okay. he's also like, you know, he's a little bit of a Long Island fucko. I don't know if you're familiar with Long Island fuckos, <laughs> but he's kind of like a Long Island fucko. <laughs> He's in crazy shape and he's like, the only way oh, to really do anything is you have to do it for 90 days, which is why they do the 90 and 90. He's like, you got to do okay. nine. And I know it's like, how about if I do an hour? 
You know what I mean? How about if I make it through tonight, you know? But like, I, wa- I want to commit. I want to commit. I want to. He's like, you'll see results. I, I, and listen, Lowe's, just I want to apologize mm-hmm. to you and I want to apologize to the audience because I've taken the audience down this road before. This is not the first time that I've threatened to do this. And I've made it. I think I did do 90 days once, like keto, sugar, sugar free. I did it once. Yeah. It's not mm-hmm. good. It's not good for the show. It's not good for me. It's it's a, mm. it's it's. It, but I want to I want to try. So I'm gonna try. Now you have a lot of major things happening. You are writing a book. What's going on with the book? What is going on with the book? Um. So I am writing a book. <laughs> I just repeated what you said. Yes. Yeah. So I decided six months ago that I wanted to be a writer and probably longer now and I decided that I was going to take that seriously and I came to the realization I have like six unfinished books in my Google Drive so many um so I was like I'm just going to write this and I'm just going to finish this and then I'm going to manifest a book deal and it's going to happen um I actually do like I do have a literary agent there so I'm signing someone who's going to help me along the way yeah so I'm, I'm writing this book and I'm like I'm gonna I'm gonna keep a little bit secret like what, it, what it's all about. Uh, but it's basically just going to be brutal recovery in a book. Do you think my 90 days of no sugar is a bad idea? Like what is your what is your interpretation of my plan? No, I love it. Like, I, you know, I for, for what I know with myself, it's like if I set myself too extreme a goal, like I'm more likely to just like say fuck it. Yeah. But if I, if I set myself like quite a realistic goal, and it depends on the intensity. Like, I remember when I took a break from dating, I, I remember, like, saying to someone, like, oh, it's going to be so weird. Like, I'm not going to, like, you know, have sex for 30 days. And she was like, it might be a bit longer. And my body went, it's, like, toxic shock. I was like, what? No, that can't be. And it and it, 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 was, it was nine months before, you know, I started dating again. But if I knew on the first day that it was going to be nine months, I would have just, like, declared myself a missing person and gone on a spree. So but that's just me. Like I need to kind of chop it up a little bit more. I think that makes sense. But walk us through that. Why did you decide that you wanted to take the month off of, of sex and dating? Oh, because I was just so tangled up. Like, I mean, it's like yourself and the sugar. Like I was just so tangled up in it. Like I was in a pattern. And like, I, I don't think, you know, I obviously don't think relationships are bad. I don't think sex is bad. I don't think these things that in themselves are inherently evil. But like the my relationship to it at that point in time was so destructive. And like any time that I got it, it just left me feeling worse. And I couldn't get out of it. So like I had to like bring that little, you know, that trapdoor down. Like trapdoor that what's the word I'm too short? Like in a castle. What's the Yeah. The I think it's it's there's a there's a cool word for it. I can't think of what it is, but I know what you mean. It's like a port or something. You know, I, like there's a, there's some ancient yeah. word in castles that the thing drops, but I get it. Yeah, I get it. It's like a, yeah. a trap door is going to make you fall through and down, but I know what you mean. It's a door that's going to, I think it's like a porticolor or something. I, I can't think of the name, but I'm with you. I get yeah. it. I just, needed, I just needed to pull that down for a wee bit so that I could like, you know, have the capability to sit with myself and regulate my emotions without, you know, manipulating someone or being dishonest with myself. Well, these are these are amazing aspirations. And and sometimes sometimes we do better than other times. At my meeting today, yeah. there was almost a fist fight, uh, which was very it was very disturbing. It was very disturbing. That's all I'm gonna say. I don't want because I can imagine somebody in my meeting 
like being like, you don't mm. mention that because then people aren't going to want to go to meetings. But it was like, it was fucking traumatic. It was like, it's like, it was like a fit. It's like, it was like, it was like, if you have like in my family, there has never been a fist fight in my family. Like it's never mm. happened. Like at a at a Mannheim family event, there's never been like a, a, a fist fight. Like it never happened. But and and this meeting has become quite family centered for me. So when like these guys are like ready to like kill each other, it's 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 not a good feeling. So like no. we we need and we need these places to be safe and and loving. <laughs> we're fucked you know what i mean but i you know i i almost got into a fist fight um in sobriety i almost got into a bar fight and that's <laughs> for the stupidest reasons uh i didn't know it was for a very good reason uh it was for an england scotland match and i was in england and i was with a few scottish friends in, in a pub and uh there, there were these guys here and they were just drunk and they were just dickheads and they identified that we were scottish and one of them called me a dirty jock cunt and i was just well, like, a dirty what cunt jock so that, that's like that's like wow. word that people will use again and i remember like i had this moment of like you know my i, I just went like <laughs> like i was looking out at myself and i was looking at a bottle like an empty bottle and i was like you know my little devil was like smash that in his face was smash it like smash it in his face and then i was like where's god in there don't smash his face in. It's going to hurt you more than it hurts him. But I, and then I was just like, okay, we're not going to use a bottle. And I was like, punch him. Like, punch. And I was just like, I was having this out of body. Like, and I was like, am I really going to get into a bar fight in sobriety? And I did not. Like, I was really proud of myself. And, and I just laughed in his face. Like, I just sat there and I laughed. And I still stopped the inside chin break. And it was beautiful. It was so good. I love that. Let me ask you this, Lowe's. Because I watch a lot of movies in, in the UK. There's a lot of bar fights and a lot of bar bottles in people's faces, <laughs> smashing bottles, stabbing people, all this kind of stuff. How Have you ever smashed a bottle in someone's face? No, I've never smashed a bottle in someone's face. Um, but my signature move, yes. we throw chairs. Really? I always throw chairs. Yeah. I, oh, my, one of my friends recently reminded me of this. Um, this was back in Glasgow. There used to be a pub. And, uh, it was like a pub club like trust situation it was only around for a couple of weeks and it was called rehab and this was when i was about 1920 when i was like trying to get sober for the first time uh, and on one of the times that that didn't work out it relapsed in rehab and uh someone stole my chair so uh wait hold on you relapsed you relapsed in the rehab no it was like the, the pub was called rehab okay 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 so you're having your relapse at the at the pub called rehab i'm with you and I was just like, you know, telling everyone how funny it was. And I was like, oh my God, guys, like, this is hilarious. This is not hard. And everyone's just like looking at me like really concerned. Uh, yeah. And, and then I threw a chair. Um, and that, that was quite a common occurrence. Like, I just, as soon as, you know, I felt any feeling, I was like, I need to throw something. I need to get it away from me. And I was, you know, chairs were always close by. And I'm, I'm quite strong. You know, I'm, I'm not small. I'm not petite. Like, I've got, I've got some upper body strength. <laughs> Did you ever hit anybody oh, with the chair? Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, uh, I never caused any serious injury, uh, but there, uh, there were, there were, uh, what's the word? no casualties, but there were, there were people that were in the way of my destruction. And sometimes I have like the audacity to say like, the only person I hurt was myself. That's just not true. No. <laughs> 
Let me ask you this. <laughs> Let me ask you this, Lowe's. Again, as a fan of, of movies in the UK and bar fights, there's a lot mm -hmm. of headbutting in the UK in the bar scene. Yeah. Have you ever headbutted anybody and broke their nose with your head? So um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I have headbutted someone. And it was in self-defense. Uh, he grabbed both of my wrists. Uh, and I was like, th this was a really, like, you know, I said all my stories was like a really horrible undertone, but like, uh, you know, it, it, it was, a, it was, you know, a moment like uh, where I was in danger and I do not condone violence, don't headbutt people. It's not nice. Uh, but I, I do remember like, you know, I was kind of in that moment of fight or flight. And I was so like, you know, my body chose fight and I headbutted him and it hurts you. Maybe not as much as it hurts them, but like headbutting someone really hurts like it is so painful it's gotta hurt um it's so sore uh yeah but um you know that i don't know what that headbutt saved me from that night uh but uh, yeah. I'm, I'm very grateful for that headbutt but i don't condone them if you can avoid them don't, don't choose them in the uk though are people just constantly smashing bottles throwing chairs and headbutting each other in the pub is that just like is it happening <laughs> as much as i would like to believe it is or no you know, there are more pubs in the UK than there are Starbucks all over the world. So it's probably happening happening less than I think you want it to. But, you know, the odds are good. The odds are good that somewhere in the UK right now. <laughs> oh, man. So hopefully yeah. right now somebody is being headbutted, a chair is getting thrown, and a bottle is being <laughs> smashed right now. Let's, I hope so. I hope so. And I hope everybody can get well, too. We have a very exciting yeah. show today. We have the, the legendary journalist, Johan Hari, who's also, this is a UK-themed show. He's also a Scottish descendant. But before we get to Johan Hari, I had a, a voicemail from a young woman in Tennessee named Allison, and we're going to play it, okay? Hey. Hey, Dave. It's Allie from... Murfreesboro, Tennessee, um, longtime listener, almost since day one. Um, uh, it's weird because my ex actually got me into the show and she's not an addict or alcoholic. She actually goes to Al-Anon as of the result of our eight year relationship um, when I was in terrible active addiction. Um, but it's awesome because we have a great relationship today and that is only due to being a gift of recovery, which sounds cheesy, but it's, um, it's true. So anyway, this is kind of an older dopey story. Um, I was about 16 um, in high school and me and some of my friends were hanging out. Um, me and my friend Chris, RIP, he overdosed um, a few years ago. But we, this is before I would ever become the terrible alcoholic that I became. Um, but I would just like fuck around and I, I was like smoking a lot of weed, taking a lot of bars, um, you know, doing some opiates here and there. But we would do a lot of Skittles, which is uh, triple C's, coracetin, uh, cough, cold, and congestion. And so I remember one time I took like, 20 to 25, um, which normally it was about like 15. We, we did them a lot and I swear I have like permanent fucking brain damage. But anyway, um, we took these Skittles and we were at Chris's house 
And we were up all night um, and it started to get crazy. And like doing Skittles, I swear out of all the things I've done, that's like, like the most fucked up I've ever been is taking those. Um, but we were all hanging out and we decided, we saw a bunch of old VHS tapes that he had and we decided that they needed to be taken apart. So we took them all out, all of the film um, we were just like frantically tearing them apart and his room was just filled with like fucking film. Um, we, so we stayed up all night, just fucking um, geeked out, whatever. And we decide the next morning, we've been up all night. We decide the next morning we are going to go to the mall um, and steal some shit because that's what we used to do as well. Um, and his mom was a nurse. She worked overnight. And it was like maybe like 45 degrees outside. And she comes home from working all night and she's like, hey, where are you guys going? Because we are all standing there twacked out of our minds, pupils huge, and we have pool noodles. And we're like, oh, we're just going to the pool. And we leave really quick. So we get in his car still high as fuck off of the Skittles and we decide we want to go to the goddamn Green Hills Mall. We kept saying the goddamn Green Hills Mall. We got to go to the goddamn Green Hills Mall and steal the rich people shit. And we go, we get near there. And when we're about to turn into the mall, the stoplights in that area were all out, like not working. And we felt like we were in a video game. We were convinced that we were, and we couldn't believe this was real. We thought this was like part of the drug experience. Um, I don't know how to explain, like we, it just was bizarre. Um, and we eventually got there, um, but, and that's not like a super crazy dopey story or anything, but it's just, it's a good one from when I was young. Um, I eventually went on to become a really, really bad alcoholic, which, um, if anything, I figured like, I don't know, I'd, I'd be an addict. Uh, cause like my mom overdosed and died on pills and I've had 23 surgeries and I've always been exposed to opiates. And like, I, I really like drugs a lot and would binge on them a lot, but I think I was just too lazy to seek them out. Um, or too scared to like get caught with drugs and get in trouble. Um, but you know, I, it's no big deal that I went to jail three times over, uh, DUIs, but yeah. Um, I never thought I'd become an alcoholic, but I, I did. And, and I feel so lame too, because I used alcohol like addicts use dope. Like I had to have it all the time. One time I tried to withdraw myself and had a r really bad seizure. Um, and that was before, like, I went back to jail and then eventually tried to kill myself and ended up at the Grippy Sock vacation store and was like, oh, okay, maybe I do need to go to rehab. And I went to rehab four times in a year, but I, I did stay sober this time. So I have a little bit over 16 months. And yeah, I love the show. I think what you do is amazing. I really hope like me and the Dopey Nation, we can get you into doing this like full time. Um, Cause like a lot of recovery podcasts are great, but you know, like they're serious and stuff. And 
I don't know, I think a good percentage of us, like we don't need to hear, we don't need to talk about war stories all the time amongst ourselves, but like, I don't know, it, it helps me a lot to hear it. And I'm able to separate mostly like that from like how, you know, how that ties into my recovery. So you help a lot of people, fucking RIP Chris. Um, I've, I've gotten some of my friends into the show and they don't know what is to come. Um, Cause I was like, start from the beginning. Um, but yeah, I really, really miss Chris. I know you do too, but um, yeah. Thanks for listening and stay strong. Dopey nation fucking toodles for Chris. All right. So that was Allison. Thank you, Allison. Allison gets a free pair of dopey socks. So thank you, Allison. <laughs> and if you're, if you're listening to the show and you want to be on the show and you want free dopey socks, email a story or send in a voicemail to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And Lowe's, what'd you think of Allison? And aren't you impressed that the audience sends in these crazy stories? I love it. I love it so, so much. And I love Allison. I could listen to that accent all fucking day. That was so beautiful. And I related so like, so I was more of a drunk and I always feel really lame for that. Like, I've got my drug stories, I've got my drug history, but like, that was a very short area of my addiction. So it's like, oh, it's <laughs> just a drunk. But I think we're very cool in our own right. Yeah, I love what she said about the, the grippy salt vacation because uh, I was a frequent flyer as well. Um, and I, I want to be your friend, Ali. Um, and yeah, that, that story that you that she talked about with the uh, taking all the tape out of the out of the tapes like that just makes so much sense and like I got that like childish you know childlike sense of, like oh we're gonna go to the mall and go shoplifting it just made me really miss shoplifting I miss shoplifting so much like my soul can't you know take that spiritual hit anymore uh but this one thing I miss from being a nutter it's uh it's definitely shoplifting what would you steal back in the day fucking anything like I <laughs> would I would never sort of like not from like you know small shops like never from like independent you know people just you know with very small profit margins like you know just it was more like and I, I've you know I've never had a lot of money so like you know it started like out of utility like I'd steal people's like Christmas presents and birthday presents because I didn't have the money to do it and then I realized like whoa fuck like this is this feels pretty good doesn't it like um yeah so then it would be like just kind of you know I remember like little, I stole a little paint set once and I was like, I'm going to start painting. I'm going to be an artist and I'm going to like tell the story of how I stole my first paint set. <laughs> and I'm a famous yes. artist. <laughs> it's so delusional. Um, yeah, like just makeup and, uh, you know, I always had like a big scarf on me. Like I always just put everything in my scarf. Did so, you like, ever, did you ever like, get caught? I, I did get caught once, but I got away with it because... I, I, I was really lucky because like, I was young and educated and white. So like, you know, um, it's like that kind of privilege that, you know, let me let me slide under the radar, which, you know, that's dark. But um, I remember like a lot of the times I knew that I was noticed, but like the security guard didn't give a fuck. Right. But yeah, that was but that, that was part of the fun because like I, I think that I wanted to get caught. Like I'm going to be totally honest. Like... I, I didn't have a lot of discipline growing up. So like I was looking for someone to like say, you're a very bad girl. 
like you know like I wanted someone to like tell me off and you know co-sign that badness that I felt on the inside because I always felt like I was bad and evil and wrong so I was like can someone just tell me that I'm bad and evil and wrong so that I've got like a reason for it you know but yeah it was also just thrill. you get attention you like the attention of, of, yeah. of getting oh my yeah, God, yeah. Right to my core there. I just wanted to. <laughs> I, I I used to steal. I used to steal constantly. I stole my. I stole like my whole life until I got sober. And and mm. I and I and I I got caught when I became a really horrible junkie. I would get caught. And I, but when I was a horrible junkie, I would just steal cookies and cereal like from the the places across the street. Right. You know, like just because I didn't have money and I wanted food, and I I would go in with like a messenger bag. And I would literally just walk around the store and fill up the messenger bag and leave. And I got away with it like a million times and I got caught one time, but I would get caught one time in each store and not be allowed to shop at the stores in my neighborhood, which was really not good. And I remember when I was in rehab, they would send us to the supermarket and we'd have like this very tight budget because I lived there. You know what I mean? I'd be there for months. And uh, we'd have this very tight budget, but I'd always steal when I was at the supermarket in rehab and I would steal like the fucking pounds of Starbucks coffee. So I had like the luxury <laughs> items and I would I would wear these big cargo shorts and I would fill the, the, the under pocket with the Starbucks pounds of coffee. I don't know. I love stealing, too. I have to thank Allison, though, for sending in the story, because like there's a lot of love in that story. And I feel like I appreciate yeah. it. I want to make it clear that I appreciate that. And I never took much yeah. cold medicine. Did you take a lot of cold medicine? CCCs, Skittles, no. whatever she's talking about? Coracetin? No, I, no. And that made see, like, you know, as she was saying, like, oh, I was, I, I'm just an alcoholic, so I'm quite lame. I feel lame because I, I, that, that was never a big part of my, my repertoire. Listen, I mean, I think all alcoholics in the dopey nation don't feel bad. It's, it's like we set a precedent <laughs> because, like, I didn't drink. And the only reason I didn't drink is because like I had like a different sort of allergy. Like when I drank, I, I like mm. got I got really sick. Like I couldn't handle alcohol. Like I so I did drugs. But listen, if you're an alcoholic in the dopey nation, you are just as 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 belonging as anybody else. So don't feel bad, Allison, or any other drunks in the dopey nation. But now we're gonna go to Johan Hari. Johan Hari is a, a very renowned journalist. He wrote a book called Chasing the Scream. He wrote a book called Lost Connections. And he recently wrote a book called Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. And there's the book. My, my mother-in-law stole this book from me and then brought it back and said she bought it. And I'm, I'm not even sure what happened, but it was an honor to talk to <laughs> Johan Hari. Let's, let's play the Johan Hari. You with me? Let's go. All right, here we go. I'm in the air quotes dopey studio, and I'm thrilled to pieces to have renowned journalist, big time thinker, possessor of the number one paperback on the shelf right now. Welcome back to the show, Johan Hari. How are you? Woo! Do you know what? I just found out something even fucking weirder than having the number one paperback, which is today I got an email from Arnold Schwarzenegger's office saying he read my book and really likes it. So I'm like, fucking hell, the Terminator liked my book. That's it. My life is now complete. Listen, I, I have to say this. I mean, I think I kiss everyone's ass who comes on the show. It's part of, part of the deal. But your book changed my life. This book 
changed well, my life. It changed my family's life. My wife is off Facebook. My daughter hates you and hates us because now her <laughs> screen time is getting cut down. I really love the book, first of all. The first thing this book did for me is it made me start reading again and, and enjoy it. You know, I, I'm in the middle of like the first third of the book and you're talking about reading and, and what it does for the brain. And I was like, I got to read for fun again. And, and I started, I, I reread uh, Herman Hesse's Siddhartha because I just needed, oh, wow. I, I just needed to feel light and it did it. And then I read Stephen King on writing and then I just finished the new David uh -huh. Sedaris book and I'm just in it. And it was all thanks to Stolen Focus. It really helped me because I was so locked up in my screen addiction and, and you being a journalist who's written extensively about addiction this book is about why we can't pay attention but you don't talk about screen addiction which i found really interesting and i wanted to see why you don't say we're addicted to screens yeah i, I mean a lot of the book obviously is about our problematic relationship with screens but i don't use the word addiction um i don't know that i have a very good answer to you but let's think it through so i wrote the book because I could feel that my own attention was getting worse with each year that passed. Things that require deep focus that are really important to me, like having proper long conversations, watching films, reading books, were just getting harder and harder. And I could see this happening to huge numbers of people around me. You know, the average American office worker now focuses on only one task for only three minutes. And for every one child who was identified with serious attention problems, when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children who've been identified with that problem. So it was difficult to talk about because at the start, I could see this problem. I was thinking about it for a long time. I thought oh, I should write about this, should investigate it. But I thought, well, the, the reasons are obvious. So it's not very interesting. A, I'm just lacking in willpower. There's something wrong with me, right? I'm not strong enough. And B, someone invented the smartphone and that fucked me over. Right. Those are not interesting stories to me. They're just depressing. But actually, I started the research. I realized those stories were hugely oversimplified. But there was a kind of moment when I realized I had to, to write about it. Well, I think addiction is a not, it's not the word I use, but I think would be a perfectly appropriate word to use. So I've got a godson. And when he was nine, he developed this brief and very intense obsession with Elvis Presley. And it was super cute because he seemed to genuinely not know that impersonating Elvis had become a cheesy cliche. So I think he was the last person in the history of the world to do an entirely sincere impression of Elvis doing Jailhouse Rock. Every night when I would tuck him into bed, he would get me to tell him the story of Elvis's life over and over again. Obviously, I skipped over the bit at the end where he shit himself to death on the toilet. And um, one night when I was tucking him in, I mentioned Graceland, where Elvis lived. And I said that people go and visit it, and his whole face lit up, and he said, wait, Johan, will you take me to Graceland one day? And I was like, sure. The way you do with nine-year-olds, knowing next week it'll be Legoland or whatever. And he said, no, 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 do you swear? Do you really swear one day you will take me to Graceland? And I said, I absolutely promise. And I didn't think of that moment again for 10 years until loads of things have gone to shit. So he dropped out of school when he was 15. And by the time he was 19, he spent, this is going to sound like an exaggeration, I promise you it's not, he spent literally almost all his waking hours alternating between his iPad, his iPhone and his laptop. And it's like his life was this kind of blur of WhatsApp, YouTube, porn. 
And it felt when you talked to him like he was kind of whirring at the speed of Snapchat when nothing still or serious could touch him. And one day we were sitting on my sofa here in London and all day I was trying to get a conversation going with him and I just couldn't, right? I just couldn't do it. And to be honest with you, I wasn't that much better, David, right? I was staring at my own devices. And I suddenly remembered this moment all these years before. And I said to him, hey, let's go to Graceland. And he looked at me completely blankly. He's like, what are you talking about? And I reminded him and I said, look, this is no way to live. Let's break this numbing routine. Let's go on a road trip all over the South. But I thought ahead and I said, look, you've got to promise me one thing, which is that when you go, you'll leave your phone in the hotel because there's no point in us going if we're just going to stare at your phone the whole time. And he took a beat and he really thought about it. And he said, you know what? You're right. I want to do this. So I think it was a fortnight later, maybe three weeks later, we took off from here to, to New Orleans where we went first. And a couple of weeks later, we got to Graceland. And when you get to the gates of Graceland now, there's no one to show you around. They hand you an iPad and you put in earbuds and the iPad shows you around. It says, go left, go right. Every room you're in, it tells you a story about that room. And every room you go in, there's an image of that room on the iPad in front of you as you walk around. So it has this slightly weird effect that everyone walks around Graceland just staring at the iPad and only really look away from it to take selfies and then go back to the iPad. We get a bit pissed off with this and we got to the, the, the jungle room that was Elvis's favourite room in Graceland. It's got loads of fake plants in it. And I'll never forget this. There was a Canadian couple next to us and the, the man turned to his wife and said, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I laughed, right? I thought they were kidding. And I turned and watched them and they were just kind of swiping back and forth. And I leaned forward and I said, but hey, um, sir, there's an old fashioned form of swiping you could do. It, it's called turning your head because you realize yeah. we're in the jungle room. You, you don't have to look at it on the internet. It's, it's literally all around you. And they looked at me like I was fucking crazy and backed out the room. And I turned to my godson to laugh about it. And he was standing in the corner staring at Snapchat. Because from the moment we landed, he, he literally couldn't stop. Right, he could not stop. And I, I went up to him. I did that thing that's never a good idea with teenagers. I tried to physically grab the phone out of his hand. And I said, look, I know you're afraid of missing out. I understand that. But this is guaranteeing that you'll miss out. You're not showing up at your own life. You're not present at the events of your own existence. This is no way to live. And he, he stormed off, understandably. And I wandered around Memphis on my own that day. And I found him that night at the Heartbreak Hotel where we were staying up the street. And... He was sitting as a big guitar-shaped swimming pool. And he was sitting there. I went up to him and I apologised for getting so angry. And it was really interesting because he, he was looking at Snapchat. He, he didn't look up. But he said, I know something's really wrong and I don't know what it is. And that's when I thought, oh, shit, I need to... I, need to... I realised sort of we'd come away to get away from this problem of distraction, but there was nowhere to escape to because it was everywhere. It was the air we breathed. I thought, well, I had to figure out what's going on here. And that was sort of how it began. And so you could well describe his behavior as an addiction. And as you know, I've always argued, I've always been persuaded by the evidence that what are called behavioral addictions are just as powerful as, you know, chemical. drug and alcohol addictions. Sure. Yeah, for reasons I can explain, I wouldn't use the word chemical, although I understand why you do. You know, go to a meeting of Gamblers Anonymous. I, I've been, I'm writing a book about a series of crimes that happened in Las Vegas. So I've been spending a lot of time in Vegas. And go to any Gamblers Anonymous meeting in Vegas. I spent some time at the Problem Gambling Centre there. Not because not, not I've got a problem with that, but just to write about it. 
And um, they're as addicted as anyone in narco- the Narcotics Anonymous meeting up the, up the hallway, right? And I think that tells you, it's interesting, Professor David Nutt. Have you ever interviewed David? Do you know him, David? You'd really like him. Oh, remind me, I'll introduce you to him. He's an amazing person. He was the, he was the chief scientific advisor on drugs here in Britain and was fired for telling the truth, basically. And it turned out to be a good thing for us because he's become a really wonderful voice on, well, it always was, but it's become an even more wonderful voice on drug policy. He said to me once, you know, gambling addiction reveals something absolutely fundamental about the core of addiction because you don't snort a roulette wheel. You don't inject a pack of cards, right? There's, there's no physical dependency component to gambling addiction. I mean, often, you know, they're also heavy drinkers or whatever, but, but, but the gambling addiction doesn't have that component. Um, and that tells you something. And I think that's probably true of technology addiction as well. So I, I'm, I'm in favor of using the word addiction in relation to it. I think the honest answer is I talked to and written about addiction so much that I thought there's a slightly different vocabulary to talk about this, which is entirely compatible with talking about it as an addiction, um, that I think sort of broadens it out a bit. Because people have such a narrow understanding of addiction in a way that I've tried to challenge and you challenge, but because people have such a narrow understanding of addiction, sort of thought it was better to talk about it in this slightly more complicated way also because I don't actually one thing that most surprised me is I don't actually think technology is I mean when I started I thought oh, I'm writing a book about tech right I ended up going on this big journey I, I interviewed over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus all over the world from Moscow to Miami to Melbourne and uh, not just the cities that begin with the letter M and um, I learned there's actually scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make it worse and loads of those factors have been hugely rising in recent years, and many of them are nothing to do with our technology. Some of them are absolutely parts of our technology. It's not all our tech. And some of them are just completely different things, like food. And it never occurred to me that the food we eat would have so deeply affect our attention. Or air pollution, or the way our offices work, or the way our schools work. And there's a whole array of factors. So, yeah, that's, that's a very long-winded way of giving a not very satisfactory answer. To I think it was a very, very satisfactory answer. And I think that this book... Like I'm going to, I've been talking about Stolen Focus since I read it. I read it in December and I've been talking about it on my show, on Dopey. I talk about it in Zooms. I talk about it all the time. And the introduction with you and your godson going to Graceland was so cinematic for me. And also just, I love the pilgrimage to Graceland, the Paul Simon song. Just as soon as you start talking about it, I hear the Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. I hear the song and there's a, a great mythology to the pilgrimage to Graceland. And I think the point is to experience life. You know, two young men from the UK to come to Graceland, a kitschy place, but an important place in American popular culture. And you guys are going to give up the screen for your godson and for yourself. But then you look at him and he can't stop. And I look at my daughter and she can't stop. And I feel so powerless and hopeless. And then I look at myself and I'm exactly the same way. And then you decide to go to Providence Town from that experience, right? And, and, and hearing your trip to Providence Town when you want, it's like getting sober. You're like, fuck this. I'm done. I need to sober up. And, and could you please tell that story? Because I found it to be like such a delight to hear your journey and what happened there. Yeah, just to say about your daughter and about my godson. So it's tempting when people talk about this to get into a kind, I know this is definitely not what you're doing, a kind of, oh, kids today kind of way of talking about it, right? Is it so wrong with the kids? And the truth is, there's nothing wrong with our kids. There's, kids, there's something wrong with the environment, 
Right. Your attention didn't collapse. Your kid's attention didn't collapse. Your attention has been stolen from you by some very big and powerful forces. But once we understand those forces, we can begin to get our attention back to some degrees, individuals and, and also as a society. But when I started thinking about the book, I didn't know any of that. I hadn't gone on this journey. I hadn't done this deep dive into the science. So I was still in this story of like, I was saying, well, with me, right? Um, and it's funny, I had this funny experience. One of the first experts I interviewed was this guy called Professor Roy Baumeister, who um, is a brilliant scientist. He's at the University of Queensland in Australia. And he's the leading expert in the world on willpower. If anyone listening knows something called the Marshmallow Test, it's a famous experiment. He's the guy who came up with that. He literally wrote a best-selling book called Willpower, right? So I go to interview him. I thought he'd be a good, good person to talk to about this. I go to interview him. I said, you know, I'm writing, thinking about a book about why people are struggling to focus and pay attention, really interested in your perspectives, what you, we could learn from your science about this. And he said something like the exact words are in the book. Oh, it's kind of interesting you say that because I just find I can't really pay attention very much anymore. I play Candy Crush a lot on my phone. And I'm sitting there thinking, fuck me. Fucking, didn't you write the book called fucking Willpower, right? I didn't say this to him, obviously, but I'm like, shit, if you can't pay attention... What fucking hope is there for the rest of us? But I actually learned that willpower is a very limited element of what's going on. It's not nothing. Willpower is a real thing. It, it's a rather limited aspect of this. So I came back from Graceland and I was in this sort of weird state of being horrified by what happened to my godson. And like a lot of revulsion, I was really appalled at myself, right? Much more than him. Although I love him and want him to have a good life. And I also had this weird thing where the book that we first met to talk about, Chasing the Scream, a book about addiction, was being made into a big Hollywood movie and into a, um, a documentary series by Samuel L. Jackson. The movie's called The United States versus Billie Holiday. So I had a load of money, right? Which I never really had in my life before. And I thought, fuck it, why am I sitting here? I've got this money in the bank. Why am I fucking sitting here, not being able to focus, feeling miserable? I'm going to go away. So I thought, well, the problem is I don't have enough willpower and someone invented the smartphone, so it seemed obvious. I'll use my willpower and separate myself from the smartphone. So I booked a beach house in Provincetown, a room in a beach house in Provincetown, and I announced to everyone, I'm going away for three months and I'm going to have no smartphone and no laptop that can get online, right? So my friend MTS had a broken, battered old laptop that never been able to get online for years. So gave me that. And I was like, I'm, I'm out of here, right? For people who don't know Provincetown, it's, it's at the tip of Cape Cod. In fact, um, its unofficial tourist slogan is just the tip, which I always liked. Um, <laughs> And it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gay um, kind of resort town. It's the kind of place where more than one person makes a full-time living by dressing as Ursula, the villain from The Little Mermaid, and singing songs about cunnilingus. It's a great place. Well, I live across, and, from, I live across from Fire Island, so I'm very familiar with this kind of I, world. Yes. I see, I see, I see. Yeah, I got in trouble on an Australian um, radio show because there's a, there's a kind of beach town in Australia called Byron Bay. And an interview said to me, well, how would you explain to an Australian what Provincetown is? And I said, well, if you picture Byron Bay with less surfing and more fisting, you've got to <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize we were live. They were absolutely horrified. So Provincetown is a great place. And I went there and I left my, my nice fancy laptop that I'm speaking to you on now in, in, with my friend Shailene in, in Boston and my smartphone. And it was a really fascinating experience. I'm almost certainly going to do it again this summer, the same thing in Provincetown, but there were ups and downs, but it was kind of incredible. Um, the thing that amazed me most was how much my attention came back. Because I also thought I was nearly 40 when I went. This was 2018. I thought, well, maybe I'm just getting old. 
And my attention quite quickly went back to being as good as it had been when I was 17 years old. I could, I, I literally, I could read all day if I wanted to. I could really listen to people. I was stunned by how much my attention came back. I mean, there were some ups and downs there too that we can talk about. But I remember on the last day, this like blissful three months. And I'd barely left Provincetown. I think I went to Hyannisport once to meet a friend of mine. But So uh, there's a, a point at the edge of Provincetown where you can, in front of the... Um, What's it called? Basically, where you can see the whole of Provincetown. The lighthouse. And well, yeah, it's beyond the lighthouse. Actually, it's got a name. It's um, I can't what it's called, but it's you can look out over the whole whole of Provincetown. And looking at this whole place, I have to think, God, oh, this has been so incredible. I'm never going to go back to how I lived before, right? Why would I go back to that? This has been incredible. And I got back my phone and my laptop. And I think I had to go to Australia from there for something. And within a few months, I was eighty percent back to where I'd been. Not not totally, but and. I, and then I was just really fucking depressed. And then I learned about the 12 factors that are actually doing this to us, uh, many of which changed for me in Provincetown, not just the tech. And then I was like, okay, we need to, I need to learn more about these factors, A, to integrate them into my own life, and B, to figure out why, why is this playing out for so many people? And look, no one in my family could dream of taking three months away from the internet and just going on. And, you know, I couldn't have dreamed of it. I had the insane good fortune of my book being made into film. And that's obviously not the solution for us all to kind of become kind of the equivalent of the gay Amish, right? That's not the answer. So I was like, well, what is the answer? And that's really the journey that the book then took me on. Well, I want to hear about the answer, but I just, I can't help but make that parallel between a drug addict who might try to pull a geographic, as it's called, and leave where the drugs sure. are to go someplace and live in some pseudo paradise, right? And there's no drugs and there's, and, and he's free or she's free and all of a sudden she feels good or he feels good and and then it all comes roaring back it just it's there's parallels like to me oh, yeah, definitely. which i love even even the cravings when i was there david i mean i remember about a month into it having had this blissful sense of relief suddenly having these intense cravings i remember one day walking down the beach that's just behind the west end of provincetown and seeing all these people standing on the beach just using Provincetown as a backdrop for selfies, basically, not looking at... And it's literally one of the most beautiful places in the world, right? It's a sandbar in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. People not looking at anything except, you know, their own pictures of their own abs, basically. But instead of going like, oh, you know, this is no way to live, you know, all the things I I said to my godson in, in Memphis, I wanted to grab the phones off them. I wanted to go, fucking give me that phone. I want to look at it, right? Let me check my social media. Let me see. And there's a very... A pretentious way of putting this, which is Simone de Beauvoir said that when she became an atheist, it was like the world had go- gone silent. And that's kind of how it felt, right? What happens, we've been, it turns out by design, we've become dependent on these constant signals throughout the day from social media that tell you, you know, I see you, you matter, particularly obviously during the pandemic, it went, you know, massively spiked up, but we were hugely, hugely rising prior to the pandemic. And when that's gone, it's not immediately replaced by anything. No normal social interaction floods you with hearts, right? And so there was a period of really felt like things had gone silent. And I felt very disorientated and lost. And I was like, oh, okay, you've created a vacuum. This will feel very familiar to addiction narratives. You created a vacuum. Okay, now you need to replace that, fill that vacuum with meaning and purpose. And it's not enough to just take away the thing, Right. You need to then figure out what was this thing doing for me and how can I find healthy ways to get that? So obviously, as you know, uh, we've talked about before, I had a lot of addiction in my family and still do. And 
Does that pop up in your so, head when you're when you're in Providence Town and you're having a craving for kind of approval, a craving to be seen, heard, known, craving for the screen? Does any of that, the research, your family addiction pop into your head and you're like, holy shit, maybe this is a thing? Yeah, it's really interesting. I'm trying to think about why. The honest answer is no. And I'm trying to think about why. And I don't know the answer, but it didn't. Although I do think behavioural addiction is a reasonable sort of way of talking about this problem. And it's not that I'm immune to applying that to myself. I have had times when I thought, oh, am I addicted to this? Or had a period when I was taking... Um, well, I, I, I grew up in a very violent and crazy family. And my way of coping with that from when I was very young was to read and write all the time, which obviously <laughs> worked out well for me in the end, but that, that coping mechanism. But, and there was a time in my life in my sort of late 20s when I was really obsessively working and writing and I started to take a, a drug called modafinil. I've written about this somewhere, but the, it's a narcolepsy drug. And I'm obviously not narcoleptic. Well, not obviously, but I'm not. I'm not narcoleptic. And if you take it and you're not narcoleptic, you can stay awake longer. But obviously, that comes with the cost that you basically go crazy after a while. So I wouldn't say I was addicted to that drug. But what I would say, I was very driven by compulsive patterns of work, massive overwork as a way of not being present with distress. And that, that took the form of then taking a drug to try to take that behavior as far as I could. And obviously, I took it too far. And I don't recommend it to anyone. So, yeah, it's not that I'm immune to thinking about addiction frames in relation to myself. But, you know, it's funny, usually when someone says you're asking a good question, funny enough, in an interview, that means you're not asking a good question. Because you're asking a good question means, in our parlance, you've asked me something I can't answer, which is actually what you don't want to do. But interestingly, you've asked a good question because it's a fertile topic that I don't, I don't know the answer to in a way that's interesting. And I don't quite know why. Yeah. I think it's interesting, like, like I'm horrible at Twitter. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't have enough followers. It makes me feel. Cause you're, well, that's because you're a nice person. And basically the only people who are good at Twitter are cunts. Right. Let's be candid. Well, I mean, no, I'm sorry. I do care about using that word. That's, a British person can use that word in a way. No, I appreciate that. it. We use the word cunt as much as possible on Dobie. So I feel, I feel good about that. But <laughs> I remember like I was trying to like, cause I want those likes, man. I want people to like what I say and I want people to give me hearts and think I'm smart and funny. And then like Jamie Lee Curtis tweets, Stevie Wonder is a genius and 30,000 people like her. And I write, I like Ray Charles and nobody cares. And it's like, <laughs> and it's like, so I think that you've built up this career, you know, this body of work that you get flooded with hearts. So like when you're in Providence town, you're like, where is this? What happened? Why am I not getting it? And I think that's just a really interesting vacuum. It, it's almost part of your work comes with a claim and a claim comes with this approval. Well, but, but, but praise is, at, I would actually say, I, I haven't looked at my social media for many years. I mean, I, 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 it sounds very grand, but I've got an assistant I can tell to do. But actually, if you said to me, yeah, I'm going to force you to look at it. Do you want to see the praise or do you want to see the people slagging you off? I actually get me, I would hate to see either, but actually I think it'd be psychologically healthier to see the criticism. Not because the criticism is right, it's mostly just people being horrible and mean, but praise I actually think is as if not more destabilizing to the self as criticism. As, um, as criticism. Because I don't mean praise from people you know, I don't mean real world praise, that's 
hugely valuable, right? Someone says, oh, remember that time you did that thing that helped me? That's, that's good, healthy praise. It just all knocks you off and destabilizes you, which is why I did after that sort of crash. And when I was rebuilding a sense of a kind of more coherent and healthy sense of self, I felt much better. I mean, I, I felt much better and I feel much better for not looking at that stuff now. Yeah, if I get a thousand reviews and 999 are good and one is bad, I'm only in the bad one, you know. You shouldn't say that because this is this is a very well-documented psychological phenomenon called negativity bias. And it actually is playing a really important role in one of the ways social media is fucking us up, funny enough. So obviously most of my book is about how our individual attention is being destroyed, right? And what's causing that and what we can do about it. But it's also that our collective attention is being destroyed. You can see this most obviously in our, what's happening to our democracies, right? It's not a coincidence. All over the world, we're having the biggest crisis of democracy since the 1930s. At the same time as we're having all these attention problems. And if you want to understand why, negativity bias, what you're describing is... So I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley interviewing the people who design the key aspects of the world in which we now live. And it was fascinating to see how sick with guilt and shame they feel. There's a a wonderful person called Dr. James Williams, who'd been at the heart of the creation of Gmail and other, other aspects of Google. And one day he was speaking at a tech conference and the audience is literally the people that your daughter, like people who design the stuff your daughter uses. And he said to them, if there's anyone here who wants to live in the world that we're creating, please put up your hand and nobody put up their hand, right? And he quit and became, I would argue, the most important philosopher of attention in the world. But People in Silicon Valley kept explaining to me, and it took me a while to understand, because in a way it seemed almost too simple. So explain to me, anyone watching, anyone listening, if you open Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, any of them now, those apps begin to make money out of you immediately in two ways. First way is really obvious. You see advertising, okay, everyone knows how it works. Second way is much more important. Everything you do on these apps is scanned and sorted by their artificial intelligence algorithms to figure out who you are and what makes you tick. So let's say that you said you like, I don't know, Donald Trump, Bette Midler, and you told your mom you just bought some diapers. Okay, it's going to figure out if you like Donald Trump, you're probably right wing. If you like Bette Midler and you're a man, you're probably gay. No disrespect to any straight men who like Bette Midler. I frankly don't believe you. And uh, <laughs> if you've you bought some diapers, okay, you've got a baby. Yes. If you've been on these apps for any amount of time, it has got tens of thousands of pieces of information like this about you. And it's gathering that information for several reasons, but the main one is because it wants to figure out what will keep you scrolling for a very simple reason. Every time you open the app or every time your kid opens the app and begins to scroll, they begin to make money because you see ads and they harvest more information about you. And every time you close the app or your kid closes the app, that revenue stream disappears. So all of this genius in Silicon Valley, all of these algorithms, all of this AI, it's all geared towards one thing figuring out how do we get you to open the app as often as possible and scroll as long as possible. That's it, right? That's all they're trying to do. Just like the head of KFC, all he cares about is how often did you go to KFC this week and how big was the bucket you bought? That's it. All they care about is how often and how long did you scroll? So they are constantly developing ever more sophisticated methods to get you to keep scrolling. And so they set up their algorithms to just figure out, well, what keeps people scrolling, right? What keeps people scrolling? What, what, what works, right? And they don't care what it is. They just want to keep you scrolling. They don't care what the specific thing is. So they're running this huge experiment on all of us. And they discovered, and this process wasn't their intention. They didn't design it. They didn't set out to do this. But they bumped into a truth about human psychology. It's actually been known about for a very long time. 
it's called it's what you're describing it's called negativity bias that human beings will stare longer at things that make us angry and upset than we will at things that make us feel good right you will remember the one bad review out of the 999 good reviews and um, you've ever seen a car accident on the motorway you stare longer at the mangled car wreck than you did at the pretty flowers on the other side of the street this is very deep in human nature 10 week old babies stare longer at an angry face than a smiling face. It's probably for good reason in our evolution. Our ancestors who weren't looking out for the one dangerous thing probably got eaten and didn't get to be our ancestors. It's a slightly crude way of putting it, but you see what I mean, right? So that's a part of human nature always has been. But when you combine it with algorithms that are constantly priming you, it has a horrendous effect. So the way you picture it is, picture two teenage girls so going to the same party and go home on the same bus. And one of them does a TikTok video where she goes, oh, what a great party. We danced all night to Ariana Grande. We had such fun, loved it. And the other girl does a video where she opens it and goes, Karen was a fucking skank at that party and her boyfriend's a prick and just does an angry denunciation of everyone at the party, right? The algorithms are scanning for the kind of language you use and it'll put the first video into a few people's feeds, but it'll put the second video into far more people's feeds. Because if it's enraging, it's engaging. What do you mean Karen's a skank? You're a fucking skank, right? You can see how it would work, right? I'd like to think you're finding what I'm saying interesting, but if someone next to you started having a fight, you would turn and watch that fight, right? So that's bad enough at the level of two teenage girls on a bus where the algorithms are promoting the meanest, cruelest comments and muffling the nicest ones. But now imagine that entire dynamic being applied to a whole society where the kind, decent people are muffled and pushed to the back, and the angry, cruel people are pushed to the front. Except, you don't have to imagine it, but we've been fucking living it for the last 10 years, right? We all know about, I mean, it's so obvious you don't even need me to tell you, right? So that dynamic is one of the many dynamics that are harming our individual attention. Obviously, the book is primarily about our individual attention and the ways that it's being harmed and the way our kids attend a lot of it's about our kids. But it's also profoundly harming our collective attention, right? And we can't listen to each other anymore. We can't talk to each other. We just scream abuse at each other all the time. Um, funnily enough, I think addiction spaces are probably some of the last, not the last, but some of the last spaces in the United States where people with very different politics still talk to each other in a spirit of love and compassion, right? You kind of, I mean, you, yeah, that's where you want it. You want it to be like that. I, I go to a 12-step meeting that's not particularly politically aligned with me and it doesn't come out at all. You know, the only thing that comes out is how do we stay sober and how do we try to do the next right thing? When I hear you talk about this, though, it makes me think two things. First thing is like, what kind of negative shit can I put out there so more people pay attention to dopey? <laughs> I got to figure that shit out. And the second thing, it's one of my favorite parts in the book. When you talk about this and you talk about the potential Facebook or Instagram or, or Twitter has to provide some kind of goodness to the consumer, like a Facebook that does good. Can you explain that whole thing? I love that part. So the way big tech want us to think about this is are you pro-tech or are you anti-tech, right? And when you hear that, you're like, look, I'm not going to join the Amish. Even someone like me, which promised to have this great time, I'm not going to do that for the rest of my life, right? So you go, well, I must be pro-tech, I guess, right? And that's not a debate. We're all pro-tech apart from the Amish. No disrespect to them. If they're listening, you are sort of cheating if you are, but they're the debate is what tech, designed for what purposes, working in whose interests? At the moment, we are using tech that is designed to work against us in the interests of a tiny number of billionaires who profit from us having fucked up attention. 
but we could have tech designed to work for us. And there's a historical analogy that you're going to remember. I think we're about the same age, aren't we, David? How old are you? I think I'm a couple of years older than you. I'm 48. Right, I just turned 44. So you'll remember this, right? I remember it. A lot, a lot of people listening will remember it. When we were kids, the dominant form of gasoline in the US, all over the world, was leaded gasoline, right? And a little bit before our time, people used to paint their homes with leaded paint. And it was discovered that exposure to lead is really bad for your brain and particularly bad for children's ability to focus and pay attention. And obviously, if it's in gasoline, it's in the air, it's everyone was breathing it in. If it's in paint, the same. So what happened was a group of ordinary moms banded together, these people who used to call themselves housewives, and said, well, why are we allowing this? Why are we allowing these, these companies to fuck up our kids' brains? This is crazy. And it's important to notice what they didn't say. So they didn't say, so let's ban all paint. Let's ban all... Petrol, right? They didn't say that, right? They said, let's deal with the specific elements in the gasoline and the paint that are screwing up our kids' brains and move to a version that doesn't do this. And, you know, these moms, they fought like hell for their children. And it followed the kind of classic pattern of all political struggles described by Gandhi. First, they ignored them. Then they laughed at them. Then they fought them. Then they won. Everyone watching knows, ain't no more leaded paint, no more leaded gasoline. As a result, the Centers for Disease Control has calculated that the average American child is three to five IQ points higher than it would have been had we not banned lead. So a great model for me. There's something in this stuff that we use that's fucking up our attention. Let's get rid of it and replace it with something that doesn't fuck up our attention, right? And lots of my friends in Silicon Valley, people I got to know, said, okay, that's what we need to do. And I kept, it took me quite a long time to understand it. So the business model we have at the moment there's basically three possible business models for social media, right? The one we have at the moment, the fancy term for it is surveillance capitalism, a term coined by the brilliant Professor Shoshana Zuboff at Harvard. Surveillance capitalism is where basically you get it for free, in inverted commas, but in return, they track you, they secretly surveil you, they hack your attention and sell it to the highest bidder. So it comes at a really fucking big cost, it comes at the cost of your attention, right? That's one model, it's the model we've got now. But the two alternative models, everyone watching will, will have some experience of, almost certainly. So the first one is subscription. We all know how HBO and Netflix work, right? You pay a certain amount and in return, you get access. Now the important thing about that is, it completely changes the dynamics. You are not the customer of Facebook or TikTok. You are the product they sell to the real customer, the advertisers, right? So. Facebook and TikTok have a customer service line. You can't phone it. I can't phone it. No. Right? Because we're not the customer. Right? But suddenly, in a subscription model, you are the customer. Suddenly, they have to ask not, how do we hack and invade David in order to sell his attention to the highest bidder? They have to ask, oh, what does David want? Turns out David feels good when he meets up with people face-to-face instead of fucking doom-scrolling through their pictures. Okay, let's design our app to facilitate that. Let's turn to tell him. This friend has indicated that he's nearby and would like to go for a coffee. Oh, great, let's go for a coffee, right? Very easy to do. It could be designed to heal your attention, not to hack it. So that's one model. Another model is one that literally everyone has experience of. In fact, everyone has experience of in their homes. Think about the sewers. Before we had sewers, we had shit in the streets. People got cholera. It was fucking awful. So we all paid to build and maintain the sewers together, right? And we all own the sewers together. Anyone listening? You own the sewers in the city where you live, along with the other people who live there. I own the sewers in the city where I live, right? Now, it might be that, like, we want to own the sewage pipes together, 
because we don't want to get cholera, we might want to own the information pipes together because we're getting the equivalent of cholera for our attention and I would argue for our politics, right? But whichever of these two alternatives you choose, and I want to stress, if it was public ownership, it would have to be independent of the government for obvious, again, for really obvious reasons, you know, the government controlling this. So a good model would be the BBC here in Britain, which is everyone who owns a television set in Britain pays a certain license fee and that funds the BBC and the BBC works for us, but it doesn't work for the government, right? It's not perfect, but it is the most trusted media organization in the whole world. So it's doing something right, right? But the key thing is we've got to change the incentives because the way I think about it with all of these 12 factors that I write about in Stolen Focus that are harming our attention from the food we eat to the way our offices work, to the air we breathe. The way I think of it is we're in a race, right? On one side of the race, you've got these 12 factors, many of which are poised to become more powerful, right? Paul Graham, one of the biggest investors in Silicon Valley, said the world will be more addictive in the next 40 years than it was in the last 40. Think about how much more addictive TikTok is to your daughter than Facebook, right? Now imagine the next crack-like iteration of TikTok in the metaverse, right? That's one side of the race. On the other side of the race, there's got to be a movement of all of us saying, hell no, you don't get to do that to me. You don't get to do that to my children. We, we don't accept this. Um, that is not a good life. We choose a life with plenty of tech, of course, but a life where we can think deeply, where our children can play outside, where we can read. If we want that, we can get it. I went to places that have made massive strides in restoring people's attention from France to New Zealand very targeted in practical ways. There is loads we can do on this, but you don't get what you don't fight for, right? And it requires a shift in psychology. We need to stop blaming ourselves. In my book, I talk about things we can do as individuals, and there are lots of them. We can talk about them and things that we can do as a society, which will only happen if we all fight for them. But it also requires a shift in psychology. We need to realize we are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg and King Musk for a few little crumbs of attention from their shitty table. You know, we are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds. And together, if we're willing to fight for them, we can take them back. I love that. You know, one of the other things in the book that made me feel so, there's so many things in this book that just made me feel good and hopeful. Considering all of the the gloom and doom that you could take out of it, (laughs) the fact that I walked away from this book feeling really hopeful and knowing that I could make some different tweaks in my life to think deeper and to enjoy my life better. One of the phrases in the books that really just exploded my mind was flow state. And I was actually listening to you talk about it again today. And I was thinking how flow state could really help addicts. You know, like when an addict can, I mean, like I think when an addict is newly sober, the phone is a great friend because it's a distraction. But when they get a little bit of time, the phone becomes an obsession. And how do they get into a flow state? How does anyone get into a flow state? And what is flow states versus what we're talking about? Flow states are the deepest form of attention that human beings can provide. And everyone listening will have experienced one of you if they don't know that term. So a flow state is when you're doing something and you just really get into it. And it's like time falls away and your ego falls away. And when it's over, you're like, whoa, that went quickly, right? And different people get into flow doing different things. For me, it would be writing. For some people, it would be making bagels. For some people, it'd be brain surgery. It can be whatever it is. One rock climber said, when you're climbing a rock and you get into flow, it's like you are the rock you're climbing, right? And flow is really important for understanding attention for a few reasons. It's the deepest form of attention that humans can provide. 
And once you get into it, it's the easiest form of attention to provide, right? It's not like, I don't know, memorizing facts for an exam, like, oh shit, what year did the Civil War begin or whatever? It's not like that, right? It, it, it comes very easily. So obviously I was very interested, if this is a deep gusher of attention that exists inside all of us, where do you drill to get it, right? How do you get there? So I went to interview an amazing man named Professor Mahali Chiksemihai, you have no idea how long it took me to learn how to say that, who is the scientist who, starting in the mid-60s, discovered flow states. I think I did the last interview here with Dick, sadly died not long afterwards. And, and he discovered a huge number of things about flow. I think there's three things that I think would be particularly helpful to people if you want to maximize your chances of getting into a flow state. So the first is you've got to set aside a good amount of time to pursue one goal. I want to paint this canvas. I want to read this book. If you're being interrupted, if you're answering text messages, if you're trying to do two, three, four things at a time, you won't get into flow. Secondly, you've got to choose a goal that is meaningful to you. Attention evolved to attach to meaning. A frog will stare longer at a fly than it will at a stone because the fly is meaningful to the frog and the stone is not, right? So you have to choose something that's meaningful to you. Often when your attention is slipping and sliding off of things, it can be a sign that what you're trying to do is not actually meaningful to you and you don't want to do it. Thirdly, this was counterintuitive to me when I first learned it, it will really help if you choose to do something that's at the edge of your abilities, but not beyond it. So let's say you're a rock climber, a medium talent rock climber. You don't want to just climb over your garden wall. It's too easy. That won't get you into flow. Equally, you don't want to suddenly try and climb Mount Everest. It's going to be too much. You want to climb a slightly higher and harder rock face than the one you did before. So flow begins at the edge of your comfort zone, right? At the edge of it, but not beyond it, which is a difficult balance to get, and you have to judge it a bit. But so if you do these three things, you choose one goal and set aside a significant amount of time to pursue it without being interrupted. You make sure it's a meaningful goal for you, and you push yourself to the edge of your abilities. You hugely maximize your chances of activating this deep form of attention that we all have within us. One interesting thing, though, is that we live in the town where they do that let it grow thing, that let grow study. Oh, and my daughter, my yeah, her health teacher is that lady. You're kidding. No, my daughter just did the let it grow project and she made waffles for us oh. and made the video. And, and that woman is my daughter's favorite teacher. And when I was in health, all they talked about was scabies and herpes and fucking, <laughs> you know, like sexually transmitted diseases. In Nora's class, they talk about flow state and 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 play and 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 achievement, oh. and it's like it, it blew her mind. And when she's it, a great, you mean Jody? You mean Jody Marici? Yeah, Jody that, Marici. Oh, what a wonderful person! Lovely, I love Jody. What a great person! If people don't know what we're talking about. A lot of the book is about why our kids can't focus and pay attention, and it turns out when you deprive children of free play, where they're playing without adults standing over them. It really stunts their ability to learn how to focus and pay attention for lots of reasons. One is a no shit Sherlock one, exercise. You let kids run around, their attention is much better. But another one is um, when children play without adults standing over them, they, they take risks. You know, you climb a tree, you get too high, you shit yourself, but you find your way down. You didn't die, right? And taking those risks is really essential. Facing those small challenges without adults telling you what to do is really essential for you to not be anxious, because it's how you get a sense of yourself as a competent person, right? Oh, I took this little challenge, I dealt with it, I'll take the next little challenge. That's how you get a sense that you are a person who can do things in the world. If you take that away from children, they're really anxious and that fucks up their attention. So what the program that David's talking about does, an amazing program that everyone with kids I really recommend go to, it's letgrow.org. 
are run by my friend Lenore Skenazi. What they do is they go to whole schools and whole neighborhoods and persuade everyone to give their kids increasing levels of independence that usually build up to playing outside, which massively restores attention. There's lots of things we've got to do. There's loads of individual things we can do to protect and restore our attention. And I go through dozens of them in the book. And there are loads of bigger things we can do. And restoring human childhood is one of them, I think. Well, it's an incredible book. I really appreciate your time. I'm directly underneath Prince Harry on the bestseller list in Spain. I've always wanted to be directly underneath Prince Harry. This is not quite the way I imagined it. But happy days. Well, that was what I was going to read. I was going to read the irony of your tweet, which was, whoop, whoop. I just found out my book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention, is the second best-selling nonfiction book on the weekend's bestseller list under Prince Harry and What Gay Man Doesn't Want to Be Under Prince Harry. Johan, you are a hero to me. No disrespect to Megan. Oh, dude, (laughs) whatever. Don't even think about it. When you come to New York. I feel that she would share. She would With you? Of course. Are you kidding? Yeah. (laughs) thank you so much for doing it thank you even more so for the book my 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 wife also went to stony brook yesterday to see francis hager the whistleblower lady speak oh yeah amazing person francis hager yeah and you have impacted my family and and obviously i'm one person so you've impacted so many people out there but our family has really been impacted by this so i i really want to thank you That's lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Johan. All right. That was Johan Hari. What did you think? What what was your opinion? Did he seem like a real legitimate UK person to you? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, he seemed like a a real legitimate UK person. I mean, it's so funny uh, hearing people talk about BBC and TV licenses, like with with an audience of people that don't know what that is. Um, So that was was some peak UK content in there. And also, I don't pay my TV license, so uh, I probably should. What does that mean? Uh, What does that mean? What does it mean? Oh, it's like... So BBC, oh God, you know, you pay your TV license and that funds the BBC, which is like, you know, the the British broadcasting situation that, you know, gives us all of our media and stuff separate from the government. But it's so biased against Scotland. Um, So that was was my, you know, that that was my first thought. And we're going to first step my first thought and step away and have some more reasonable thoughts. Um, I loved that episode. I thought that that was really, 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 really beautiful. Like a lot of the stuff that he said, um, yeah, I, I, I haven't read the book, but I read um, a few, a few reviews and uh, and stuff like that. And I think that you know, this, the fact that he says that it's lack of willpower or the smartphone, like that's not interesting and depressing. It's all really simple. Like there's got to be more here. So that was really, really interesting because I feel myself like uh, I teach kids, like I teach kids piano, and sometimes you know I get. You know, I get really frustrated because, like, you know, when, when I was a kid, like, I grew up without a TV even. Uh, and, you know, it would be nothing for me to practice half an hour a day. And kids' parents are telling me, like, oh, I can't get out to practice for more than 10 minutes. And I'm like, oh, fucking kids. But the way that he said, like, you know, there's nothing wrong with the kids. It's the environment. I think that's a really um, empathic way of, of putting it. Like, you know, the, we're, we're not broken, and, and, you know, this stuff can bounce back, but, you know, there's something, you know, in the environment that we, we could be changing. You know, there's there's factors there. Um, yeah, I, I loved what it had to say about, about a lot of things. Uh, yeah. But I, what I'm really interested in is you 
put together one of the most compelling addiction recovery meme pages on Instagram. And one of the most biggest focuses in this book is the addictive nature of the telephone. And I'm like hopelessly addicted to the phone and it fucks me up. And I, and my, my Instagram content is just like recycled memes because I found when I put my own stuff up, nobody cared. And yet I'm still addicted. How do you like, do you consider yourself addicted to the phone? What's your relationship like with the phone in general? So something that I realized recently with my phone is um, I reach for it the second I feel a tiny bit uncomfortable. So um, if I'm in a conversation or or if I feel social anxiety or, you know, if, if I'm with, you know, having a conversation with someone that we're talking about something that makes me feel a bit vulnerable, find myself reaching for my phone and I'm catching myself doing it and rather than like catch myself in the middle of it now I catch myself in the desire to do it so like if I'm you know get getting honest with someone about something that's upsetting me which to me is like the most hellacious thing in the world to do like that is so scary like I I say like oh my god I wish I was on my phone right now so like for, for me like it's it feels like I'm looking for that chemical buffer like I'm looking for that thing that's going to take me out of who I am right now yeah, I also think that, like, you know, in the realm of kind of, like, masochism and the negative bias, like, staring at the things that make us feel bad, I met the uh, Yuan talked about, you know, so, something that I have really, really strongly with myself, um, and I need to, or I would lose my fucking mind, is uh, social media boundaries. So if I look at my ex's Twitter, if I stalk my ex's ex on Instagram, if I, I you know, see... A news article that upsets me and then find every news article that will upset me consequently like I, I taste my sponsor about that like I put that because that's breaking a boundary with myself because like I want to be uninformed and sexy like I want to just leave all of that <laughs> you know because because that's you know that's emotional cutting for me and there are things need to wait be say that again say what you just said again that's what emotional cutting you know if I if I you know find something that makes me feel bad and, you know, there's nowhere for the, like, if, if, if I'm experiencing, you know, regret or remorse or, you know, someone makes me feel bad because of how they're feeling, like, I can put that somewhere, like, I can help or I can direct my focus or I can change something. If I'm just, like, incessantly seeking out something that's going to make me feel worse and worse for the sole intention of making me feel worse or for the sheer fact that I can't not look at it then that's self-harm. Like, that's harming me. Right. Uh, so I, I've got really strong boundaries around that. Um, what are the boundaries exactly? As, Explain how that works. And also, would you consider, so, uh, like, when people talk about hate scrolling, like, you know, like, I mean, I, I don't even yeah. know, like, like when people pop into my feed and I fucking, and, and I, I get crazy resentments, I get envy, mm -hmm. I get nuts, I fucking hate them. Like, I can feel that, like, a number of times and then I'm like no more and I and I unfollow yeah. like and when I unfollow people it's like the great it's, it's like it's pathetic because I'm unfollowing like famous people you know what I mean like they don't know that I followed them they don't know that I cared and they don't know that I'm gone but somehow it, it like yeah. relieves me so talk to me about like what is hate scrolling I think you're more plugged into this shit than I am first of all and secondly talk about yeah. how you set boundaries 
So uh, he's scrolling to me and my, my biggest uh, defect of character is envy. So like, I am no stranger to a hate stalk. Um, yeah, and for, for me, like, I just purposely am seeking out people that I dislike or disagree with or I'm envious of. And to me, like, I do use the word intoxicate myself because, like, I intoxicate myself on the feeling of hatred and resentment that it gives me. And, you know, that it, it's really, really palpable. So, like, basically, like, my boundaries for myself are trying to keep it as simple as possible. I do not look up any social media platform of my ex, of, of any of my exes. Like, I leave them be. That's as much for their safety as mine. I do not uh, look up <laughs> social media platforms of my ex's exes or my ex's current partners. Like, I, that's so off limits for me. Like, I just can't go there. If I stumble across it by accident, okay, whatever. But, like, I can't seek it out. And that took practice. Like, enacting that just took practice. It took, like, you know, the withdrawal of not getting that little hit, that little hatred hit, that little, like, you know, nostalgia fantasy hit. And it, but but like it, the thing is, is that it worked. Like it really, really, really worked. Like I rarely ever think about my exes ever. They are they are just human beings on planet Earth living their life. I don't need to know a single thing about that. Yeah. So like, what I found myself with uh, this was to kind of like counter my envy. Like uh, my old industry, like the opportunity industry, is uh, you know it's all about self promotion and you know people. Uh, showing how how good they're doing. So like at first, like a really good way for me to work on my envy was like genuinely being happy for people. So like I would, as soon as I saw someone do well, like I would immediately like it. Like I would just be like, good for you, good for you. And that like I had to engineer that at first because it like pained me to like that. But then then it came to me naturally. Um, But I still do find myself like if someone's doing really well or if someone is just like so contrary to like my worldview um I can, I can find myself like seeking that out and like I don't know like in the end like I just need to realize and I think we all, we, we all know this but like we really need to feel that like the only person we're hurting is ourselves like you know they unless you know we're, we're coming into you know we're actually plotting their downfall and right. acting upon it. It's too bad. It's, I wish, I wish, I wish I could engineer their downfalls. But so like, what is it like <laughs> when we're actually hurting ourselves? Like describe that some more, because I think this is a really, I think this is a really cool conversation. And I'm, or, or I just appreciate yeah. what you're saying because I, I suffer envy, self-hate, needing Mm -hmm. I mean like acceptance like there's one thing about acceptance in the big book like whatever like we we need to you know acceptance is the key to all of our whatever happiness but in terms of needing acceptance as an entity in the world of social media like you need people to like you you need people to be like you know and then when they don't you're like I'm nothing I'm not important like when Mm -hmm. you have a and then all this bullshit shadow banning and stuff like, how often do you think oh people God. are like, I got shadow banned, but really they're like, I'm a piece of shit and nobody likes me. Yeah, sure. And I think that feeling like that predates social media. Like, I remember like on my maybe 15th birthday, like so many people, this was on like fucking Facebook. So many people said happy birthday, but there was one person that didn't. And then my like, it's what, 15 years later, and I'm still like, God, my 16th birthday was shit because Graham didn't say happy birthday to me. Who like, was it? Exist. No, no, no. I've said too much, Dave. 
But I know what you mean. I know what you mean. It's it's the same one is too many and a thousand is never enough principle. There's never enough. Right. And I've had exactly that this week because like for a wee while, like, you know, my my followers were, you know, steadily increasing. I try not to look at that very much because it's fake. Like it's not real. And, you know, I was making names and they were doing okay. You know, they were kind of like middling. And then in the space of last week, like for some reason, I don't know what happened, but two of my memes like really kicked off. Like they got really, really out there. And like overnight I got like, you know, 2000 followers. And I was just like, I was just like, I want this to stop. Like I, I'm overexposed. Too many people are looking at me. I'm never making another meme ever again. Like this is too much. Like leave me alone. And it's just, it's so crazy. Cause like when I'm not getting the recognition, I'm like, I didn't exist. This is awful. <laughs> exactly. Nobody yeah. loves me. I'm a failure. And then the second it goes my way, I'm like, oh, I don't want this either. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's an amazing conundrum that we live in. But I also just thought like, man, just like the title of the book, why you can't pay attention and how to think deeply again. There's something in that word to like, first of all, I, I've never been able to pay attention particularly well. But the idea of thinking deeply, it calms me. Like it, I, I imagine like a deep ocean mm. and I feel good. Like I want to like, I want to think deeply. Like I want to be able to do that. And, yeah. and, and for me, like the phone very much became cigarettes. Like, like I used to like do wow. something. I used to like, like I used to be like a furniture mover in one of my lives where I was a waiter, you know what I mean? Like, and, and every time, literally as a waiter, Every time, or as they say in England, literally, literally, I was, I was, every time I would drop a fucking meal, I would run outside and smoke a cigarette. Like, that's how crazy, crazy I was. And, and I find like, it's like that with the phone. After anything, I need to look at the phone. And it's, I think you described yeah. it pretty well. Uh, it's nuts. I want to think deeply again. And I, and I, I want to try using some of his tools I don't know how many of his tools he's actually using because at the end of the book, he's like, he, he actually has this thing and we didn't talk about it in the interview. He takes his phone and he puts it in a case and he locks it and, and, he, oh. like, and, he, and he sets like hours that he can't get to his phone. And he, he also says yeah. that he takes half the year off social media and, and uh, which is pretty, oh. pretty wild. So yeah. I, I, I read this book like I have to read books or I don't have to read books. I like reading books for dopey. I like being researched. This book I actually loved. So I want to recommend to you to read it. And I recommend to the dopey nation. Yeah. The book is fucking sick. It's, it's relaxing. And if you don't love reading his audible, it's like fucking great. He record. He is a great voice. You know, he, he's good. It's good. So that's my big recommendation. Any other thoughts I about this thing? I love so much what you said in the episode um, about that you're reading again. Reading is one of the most precious things in my life. Like, see, and I love that you read Siddhartha. Like, that was the that was the books that you picked up. Like, I just read uh, Narcissism Goldman's uh, by Hessen. I, I love like. Wait, what's it called? So, so, so I'm Narcissism Goldman. It's it's his book about like uh, it's it's two people and one of them is like involved totally in spiritual matters and one of them is totally in physical matters and it's like kind of an exploration of like the you know, place in the middle. It's very good. If you like Hesse, you'll love it. But yeah, like, oh my God, uh, reading is 
so so when I decided I was going to be a rice nerd, like a non-negotiable part of my day is that I read for an hour and I write for an hour. And what like at minimum, I usually do more. Uh, and while I'm doing that, my phone is on airplane mode and it is far away from me. Because like I just I just can't have it there. And like I'm I'm quite so I, I don't have ADHD, like I have ADHD traits, like and I've been misdiagnosed so many times with so many different things, but like I don't have like ADHD. So like I can't imagine how difficult it would be. You know, and I know that I'm like very privileged in in the realm of like you know I do I do have the capacity for for extreme focus. So yeah, I, th- I think that this book will be really helpful for me just to like kind of deepen that like deep thought and deep flow flow. What's all about flow? Like I that that hit for me. Yeah, yeah. Like um, flow states because I got that forming all the time. Like it came to me by my effort, and it was like yeah, what you said about like this one goal. Uh, at the end and you know what it talks about monotasking as well I don't know if you talk about that that might have been a review that I read but it's like yeah multitasking and like that's my like I'm you know I'm a piano teacher singing teacher instagrammer like writing a book like I've I've got 10 jobs going on at the same time so like when you know talks about focus on one fucking thing that's going to be really helpful for me no I mean like that I, I do so many things at the same time constantly and I'm thinking like, oh my God, I, I'm, I'm a multitasker. But before I even go into that, I want to say what you just said is really interesting because everybody has traits that are ADHD. You know, everybody has right. traits. But the fact that you said, I'm not ADHD, you're like making that decision because you could just as easily say, well, I have ADHD because you have ADHD traits. So you're like, I don't want to fucking do that. I'm going to say I don't have ADHD, so I do not like victimize yourself. I think that's a very refreshing thing to hear because everybody who has ADHD traits is like, I have ADHD, right? Right. But like, I, I do know like there's so many of the closest people in my life have, you know, they've got a diagnosis for ADHD and it is debilitating. Right. And, you know, it's, it's really weird to watch, like, because, you know, but whilst, you know, I'm a little fucking drug addict and I've got, you know, I talk very fast and very insanely and my brain has a crazy relationship with dopamine. When I see someone who's like deep in ADHD, like in complete immobility, like it's it's just so, yeah, like, it really, like I've got a lot of empathy for that and like a lot of admiration for people that like work around that and work with that. And it's not something that necessarily, uh, you know, I understand fully either. <laughs> Maybe the day will come where a psychiatrist says to me, like, oh, by the way, you have ADHD and I'll have to step into that. But like, you know, like you're, no uh, one's ever going to no one's ever going to tell you that you're and it's like if you want to go seek out a diagnosis to get Adderall, they'll tell you that. You know what I mean? You know who uh, Gabor Mate is? He's a very. Fi- yeah, I, I, I did an uh, interview with him once and I told him I was trying to write a book. And uh, would he recommend, and I told him my whole drug history and everything. And I was like, would you, would you recommend I take Adderall to write the book? And he's like, yeah, I think that would be a good idea. <laughs> and I was like, this is, I was like, Gabor Monte thinks I should be on Adderall. I think this is a good idea. I think we're going to start with the Adderall. Then I might be doing some ayahuasca ceremonies in Canada with him and I'll come back to the ayahuasca again. I mean, to the Adderall again, but it was like, it's, it's just awesome. You know, like. I think no one ever is going <laughs> to diagnose you with ADHD unless you seek an ADHD diagnosis. You know, you're an adult, you're That's functioning, okay. you know, life is good. Yeah. Uh, what was I going to say? I think, isn't that so fucking crazy? Like when Gabor Monte tells you to take Adderall, you should be like, yes, I'll do it. 
I know. You need to put that in a bio somewhere. It's like cover my soul bitch to take out their home. It's not a bad idea. I appreciate that's funny. That's funny. That's funny. I'm glad I'm glad that this I'm glad that this cracked you up. It's rare that I, I crack anybody up that much. Before we go, I wanna read an email I got and, and I, I you know I'm you ready? You with me? I'm so ready. All right, here we go. What up, Dave? Figured I'd give you a little update. And by the way, last episode, we got an email from this guy who fucking like wants to get off heroin and he bought an ounce of heroin and an ounce of heroin and he's struggling this and that. And I, and I said his name, right? Because it's in the, you know, he wrote me an email. So I'm referring to him saying his name. He wrote, he wrote me again, telling me I had to take his name out of the episode. So I'm never saying anybody's name again. Cause I had to bleep his name. And then I lost all the downloads and like, it's fucking crazy. <laughs> it's horrible, horrible. And so I'm not going to say this person's name. Just, just so we're clear. We'll call him T. All right. Hey. Yes. Hi, okay. T. This is T. Figured I'd give you a little update on where I am. Oh, he was, uh, He's, he's written an email before. He, he got a pair of dopey socks for writing an email. I'm not sockless anymore, thanks to you. I get my children every weekend. I have a good job. I just finished a deep course and will have my license back soon. I've got enough clean time now that I am starting to see the benefits of sobriety. Now for the dopey tale of the last time I got high, uh, which was uh, April 22nd of 2022. I got arrested last Valentine's Day for a domestic, of all things, and violating probation. I kicked dope, meth, and subs in jail. Then I started getting Suboxone off people in jail maybe once a week and putting it on my eyeball. So he's dosing Suboxone on his eyeball in jail. After two months, I was allowed to go to a six-month rehab. I was off subs for the first week I was there. Then some dude in there offered me fentanyl. That shit never happens when I'm actually sick and I need it. I planned on keeping it until everyone went to bed and then get high. But I'm a junkie and can't hold on to drugs <laughs> at all. So I stopped by the kitchen and grabbed a piece of foil on my way to the third floor bathroom that nobody really uses. I locked the door and put some fentanyl on the foil. All I remember is taking one big hit. I don't even remember taking the lighter away. I came to in the ambulance. Fuck, this ain't good, was my first thought. Between the people at rehab and the medics, they had to Narcan me four times. When I came out of my fog at the hospital, I figured the cops would be there shortly since I was on a bed to bed. There was no way the rehab was going to let me stay. I just overdosed seven days in. I have shot all kinds of drugs and used to go hard as fuck, and I never overdosed. Here, I take one hit at rehab and overdose. I didn't even know <laughs> you could OD smoking it. Anyway, I ripped the IV and all the stickers off me and was ready to split from the hospital because fuck, making the cop's job easy. A nurse walked in and asked me what was up. I told her I was ready to go. Then she said, okay. And the lady at the rehab said to call her when you needed a ride. All right. I completed the six-month rehab and I'm still sober. I am the only person to ever overdose while <laughs> at that rehab. But they also now made sure to put Narcan everywhere and implemented, implemented Narcan training. Oh. I figured that was a good time, a good last time to get high. The sockless dope fiend. Mm -hmm. That's a good, good dopey story. Oh, 
Oh, that's such a good toffee story. I love the the ripples of that story. You, even though he's the, the first and only person to overdose in that rehab, we may won't be the last and they'll be fucking ready. That's amazing. And that's a great distinction to be the first person that overdosed in that rehab. So congratulations to you, <laughs> sockless dope fiend. And then the other thing is that... Uh, our, 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 we started a nonprofit charity called the Dopey Foundation, and we just got our uh, our actual status, our government status. Our, our nice. So like, and we just got a mess of uh, Narcan and fentanyl test strips from a Dopey Nation member named Austin. So thank you, Austin. Austin's an old school dope with a Dopey tattoo on his thigh, and he's dating <laughs> he's dating some other Dopey listener in California. So the romance, no. there's dopey romances happening. What do you think about that? Let's sing at the wedding. Okay. You'll, okay. <laughs> Austin, if you marry this special someone, I'm not going to say her name to protect her anonymity. If you marry this special someone, uh, Lowe's of Brutal Recovery has just volunteered to sing operatically at your wedding. Then, uh, yeah. that's <laughs> Dude, that's a pretty amazing offer. And if anyone needs Narcan or fentanyl test strips, just write me at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I will send it out. This was awesome. Did you have a good time? I've had a fabulous I have not wanted to look at my phone once. And that's a good sign. All right. Um, oh, that's what I wanted to ask you about. The meme war, the upcoming meme war in the world of... Because the, the world of recovery and addiction memes is is incestuous and rife with action right wouldn't you say it's a whole world of, of oh my god it's a world it is, onto it itself such a little subculture isn't it it is like is there's so many different styles of a kind and like so, so when i started memeing like it was uh dank recovery memes uh fucking sober and like 12-step memes and they just the sourced from facebook and then there was me and that was it for a while and then the you know over the past four years i think that's how long i've been at it you know, there's been more and more kinds. There's been more and more nuance, and uh, yeah, there there have been. Oh, Bill Wilson, that was another one, uh, another early days one. Yeah, and it's just like there's there's so much like drama in meme world, like, and there's so many hidden alliances and and beef. Uh, <laughs> and beef. Yeah, there's lots of beef, and it's it's yeah, I mean it's. Listen, I, I feel like I'm, I'm the old guard here. Like, I've been at this for, I mean, four years. It's not an enormous amount of time to be a memer uh, or to do anything. But, like, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm stepping out of it. You're Switzerland? Like, I am Switzerland in this situation. I'm, and my primary purpose is to make people laugh and have a nice day. There's, the, I see, I just stay, I just stay so far out of it now. Like, I just, I just stay so far out of it. And uh, I feel like Matt is so fucking sober. We, we just stay out of it and uh, observe. But like, you know, it's 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 funny because uh, it's it's quite cool, right? Because like, there's a meme account for every different particular type of how they choose to identify as someone in recovery. And, you know, there's the, there's the real alcoholics of Instagram, uh, and there's, you know, people that, like myself, that capture, you know, different areas of recovery. Like I talk about sex and food and self-esteem and all of that shit. And then there's, you know, the, the really trolly accounts. 
maybe they're trolling maybe they're just bad people i don't know <laughs> that's a judgment uh but and, and then like you know there's and then, and then there's everything in between so recovery mean world like there's something for everyone it could be as niche as you like it and the longer you stick around you'll see who hates each other it's great excellent and uh our our meme our instagram is like you know, I, I aspire to our Instagram being better than it is, but right now it's just a curated meme world. And we just hit 9 million downloads, Lowe's. Did you see that? Dopey just broke 9 million downloads. So I feel excited about that. And uh, I appreciate you being here. And I appreciate the Sockless Dope Fiend. And I appreciate Johan Hari. And I appreciate Allison at the front. So thank you, Lowe's. And I would love to have you back whenever you want. Oh, I'll be back anytime, Dave. This has been so much fun. I've loved this. Me too. Very nice. All right. Thanks, Lois. <laughs> Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. What's up, Dave and Chris? My name's Jake. I'm 25 years old from West Virginia. I just found Dopey about two weeks ago, and it's my favorite podcast of all time. Y'all are hilarious and it's just gotten me through some really hard times and though I'm not clean myself, you know, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Um, I really like Dave's song and I'm going to do a little cover of it here on my banjo. Hope y'all don't mind too much. I wrote a uh, third verse myself. Sorry about the poor quality. It's just on my phone. And, uh, sorry about the banjos. Things hard to keep in tune. <clears throat>
Well, I hope you all hear this. Makes it through the uh, big inbox of emails. Feel free to play a clip on the show if you want. I, if not, I know it kind of sucks. All right, uh, really appreciate it. Thanks, y'all.